The reading is from Luke 4, verses 14 to 30, and this can be found on page 1030 of our church Bibles. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naamah the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just bow our heads for a prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come by your spirit, that you would help me to speak, and that you would give us all ears to hear your voice. For Jesus' sake. Amen. On December the 10th, 1971, an incident occurred at the Rainbow Theatre in London. In front of thousands of adoring fans, um, the American rock star Frank Zappa was thrown off stage by a disgruntled person in the audience, and he suffered a broken leg, a broken rib, a hole in the back of his head, a paralysed arm, and as a result of a damaged larynx, his voice was permanently lowered. What has that got to do with anything? Well, in about 30 AD, an incident occurred in the synagogue in Nazareth. Jesus, after speaking to a group of adoring fans, suddenly has them turn against him, drag him up to the top of a cliff where they try to throw him off. Unlike the incident with Frank Zappa, they failed and Jesus walked away. But what caused the people of Nazareth, who heard Jesus speak, to turn against him? 
in such a dramatic way? Well, in Frank Zappa's case, it was because the disgruntled fan was so incensed by his own girlfriend's infatuation with Frank Zappa that when Zappa broke into a cover of I Want to Hold Your Hand during the encore, presumably the disgruntled fan thought that Zappa was speaking directly to his girlfriend and he flipped. But why does Luke tell us about this strange incident? What can we learn from it? What was Jesus saying to the people in the synagogue that day? And what is God saying to us today through this account? Well, do please, if you haven't already, turn to the passage. In the Church Bibles, it's on 1031. And if, it's, um, if you haven't got a Church Bible, then please just open the service sheet. But. So Jesus, the context is this. Jesus has completed his 40-day fast in the wilderness, where he's been confronted and tempted by the devil. I just need my slide changer. Where he's been confronted and tempted by the devil. And as Chris told us last week, he overcame the devil's temptations. And he's now returned to Galilee, as Luke puts it, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're told that news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. This passage in Luke is often kind of thought of as the sort of inauguration of Jesus' ministry, the kind of starting point. But clearly it's not actually that, because verse 15 tells us that he's been teaching in other synagogues in Galilee before he came to Nazareth, and that his preaching has gained a popular reputation. Everyone praised him, apparently. So you can imagine, with his growing reputation as the hottest visiting speaker in the area, that the local boy returning to his local synagogue where he grew up, everyone would have turned up on the Sabbath to hear him. It might have looked something like this. Incidentally, Jesus turns out, it turns out, used to go to church every Sunday. (laughs) Verse 16 says that on the Sabbath day, Jesus went to the synagogue as was his custom. Now, yes, of course, in Judaism, the Sabbath was a Saturday, to be technical. But we know from this that he attended synagogue each week. Vicars in particular love to point this point out. The visiting speaker, Jesus, is invited to read from the scriptures. And it seems from verse 17 that he didn't choose the book itself. It says the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him. But he might well have chosen the passage because we're told that unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And then everyone stares at him and waits for him to speak. And we're told that he begins by saying the following rather surprising words. Today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And to begin with, everything goes well. We're told that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. We don't know exactly what else he said. Interestingly, in his reading from Isaiah, he doesn't actually finish the second verse, which fully read would have said, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. 
to comfort all who mourn. Now, whether we read anything into that, that Luke is emphasizing the love and the grace of God over the judgment of God, it's hard to say. But he seems to be implying something like that, because in verse 22, we're told that people were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. So what goes wrong? How does Jesus then manage to lose his audience? Well, it's not entirely clear, but I think that the enormity of what Jesus is saying begins to dawn on the people who are listening to him. The doubts begin to creep in. What Jesus is saying begins to sound offensive. And it's not immediately obvious, but perhaps it sounded a bit like this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. It's all about me. This passage of scripture is all about me. Do you see what's going on? The passage quoted from Isaiah is a messianic passage. It prophesies the coming of the Messiah who would one day become the saviour of Israel. And the local lad, the son of a joiner, is saying, hey, that day has arrived. I'm here. I've come to do these things. Effectively, he was saying, I am the promised Messiah. And so they start doubting and they start questioning. Isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus knows just where they're going with it. He reads the signs of unbelief, which will soon turn to demands of proof to perform miracles. So he gets there first. And he says, in effect, in verse 23, Sure, the next thing you'll do is to ask me to perform for you what you've heard that I've already done in Capernaum. Because you don't really believe who I am. And he summarizes it in verse 24 by saying, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. This, incidentally, always worries me because Reading is my hometown. Much later, of course, the Apostle John would write in the first chapter of his Gospel, though the world was made through him, through Jesus, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And then in verses 25 to 27, Jesus lands the killer punch, as it were. He reminds his audience, who were devout Jews, who thought that they were God's special people, that they aren't so special after all. That in fact, God's love is so extravagant that two of the greatest Jewish prophets, Elijah and Elisha, had effectively saved two foreigners rather than two Jews. He's really saying, look, you can all turn your backs on me if you like, but then you should know that God's love, his mercy and his blessing will pass you by and fall on others, on Gentiles, on foreigners, whom they thought were beyond the pale. And that was too much for his audience. They turn on him, they drag him up to the top of a hill, they try to throw him off the cliff. It doesn't happen. Luke writes that Jesus walked right through the crowd and went on his way. You know, there's an interesting link back to the previous passage where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and the devil says, why don't you throw yourself off a high place? And he refuses to be tempted. And now the people try to do that for him. But God saves him 
in another way. And Jesus walks extraordinarily, miraculously perhaps, away through the crowd unhurt. It's an amazing account. But how can it speak into our lives today? Well, I think it can help us in three ways. You see, I think the behavior, the attitude of the people in the synagogue that day are not so different from the attitudes of many of us today, both Christians and non-Christians. And it helps us to understand much more about God's love. So firstly, God's love is for everyone. God's mercy and his saving grace is for everyone. Not just special people, as the Jews thought, but for everyone. And I know that it's easy to just kind of nod at this statement. But actually, how easy do you find it to pray for President Assad or for Donald Trump or for Vladimir Putin? I can hear some of you thinking, no problem at all, I simply don't try. Or how about praying God's blessing on the child who is bullying your child? Or helping out a neighbour who normally does nothing but complain? Or praying for the travellers who've turned the top of Circuit Lane into a rubbish tip? Or what about people who go out and get paralytically drunk and do stupid things and smash up bus shelters and vomit all over the road? Are there any street pastors here this morning? (laughs) James... (laughs) Why? You know, when these people go out and get completely drunk and binge drink and cause all sorts of problems, why do you go out to them? Why do you give up a night's sleep and go out and help people who, well, they only deserve what they get? Because God loves everyone. He doesn't have favourites. He loves them too. Jesus is so challenging. He doesn't let us off the hook. The people in the synagogue, it says, were amazed at his gracious teaching. In fact, most biblical commentators say that the Greek word that's translated amazed in this translation is actually better translated astonished, as if they were taken aback. That precisely because he was speaking about God's grace for everyone, they were shocked at his teaching. And many of us are affronted, even outraged, at the idea that God loves every member of ISIS as much as he loves you or me. God may not love what some of them have done and what they do, and unless they repent, they will come under judgment. But every living, breathing human being is a person who could be transformed by the love and the grace of God. Remember, that as Jesus hung on the cross at the hands of his persecutors, dying, winning for them their potential salvation, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We'll never know how many of those people who stood around the cross that day, after the resurrection, repented and became followers, but some of them did for sure, because on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people in Jerusalem became followers of Jesus. We're good at praying for other Christians, and that's a vital part of Christian discipleship. Paul the Apostle said in his letter to the Ephesians, always keep on praying for all the saints. But Jesus also told us to love our enemies. I remember when our daughter Kylie was getting bullied by another girl in school, Kirsty suggested that she start praying for that girl. And that was tough, but she decided to do it. 
And over time, the bullying stopped. Jesus challenges us that all people everywhere are the object of his love and mercy. He knocks on the door of everyone's life and stands waiting for them to open it and accept his gift of grace. That's the first thing. Secondly, Jesus challenges us to respond to his kingdom, his presence today, his messiahship. The people in Israel were waiting for a Messiah. They'd been waiting for 400 years. That's the intertestamental period, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the time between the prophets prophesying that a Messiah would come and the day that Jesus was born. And here he was standing in the synagogue in Nazareth saying, in effect, I'm here. And that was an overwhelming idea for the people who he was speaking to. It turns out that they were much more comfortable waiting for the future Messiah than they were about dealing with him when he arrived. Every pastor, every vicar will tell you that they long to see revival, that they long to see God move in extraordinary power. But the truth is, if we're honest, that every vicar and pastor is also, there's some part of us that's a little bit afraid, perhaps even terrified of the idea, because if it happens, it changes everything, it turns everything upside down. You know, when revival swept through the Hebrides, the Outer Hebrides in the early 1950s, people were falling to their knees in the streets, overpowered by the presence of God and the love of God and the judgment of God. And it left very few people unchanged. Kirsty and I spoke to some of them who are still alive today when we visited the islands a few years ago on a kind of pilgrimage. These were people who'd come to faith in their teenage years, in their early 20s, young adults in 1951 to 52, 53, as this extraordinary move of God swept the islands. And we met a man in his 80s who was stacking shelves in a small grocer's store that he owned. And we later learned that he's one of the wealthiest men on the island because he owns the abattoirs where the sheep are slaughtered and then obviously packed and sent off. And Apparently every year when the auctions come round, he goes along to the auctions and if the price doesn't reach a living wage for the farmers, he buys all the sheep at a price that will keep them going for the rest of the year. That's a life turned upside down by the love and the grace of God. And the point is that when Jesus said in the synagogue that day, oh sorry, that what Jesus said in the synagogue that day should turn our lives upside down because the situation hasn't changed. The Messiah has come. Jesus is alive. Today, this scripture is being fulfilled in our present time. God's kingdom is breaking in and the power of his Holy Spirit that anointed him to bring good news to the synagogue in Nazareth is with us and in us today as he works in us and forms us and transforms us and this knowledge forces us to reevaluate our lives. What do I do with my time? Might I give up a night's sleep to go out on the streets of Reading or serve at Cafe Alive down at the Grange Church where we need more team members because we want to be able to spend more time with customers, build relationships and share God's love with them? What do I do with my resources? I was at the Reading Christian Network prayer meeting this Wednesday. We heard about Uh, a Christian in Reading who's getting on in life and recently decided to sell everything he had except for the bare necessities 
and he's given away £100,000 in four lots of £25,000 to four local Reading charities who help the hungry and the homeless and those in need in Reading. That's challenging, isn't it? That's really challenging. Or how can I love those around me better? My wife, Kirsty, my children, my home group members. Can I give someone a lift to home group or to church who otherwise wouldn't be able to get here? Should I make one of my spare rooms available to a child or a young person who has no family? Something like 200 children in Reading need a home for good, a place they can call home. If you think you might have a spare room available, talk to us about it or contact Home for Good and find out more. So firstly, God's love is for everyone. Secondly, unlike the people in Nazareth, we know that the Messiah has come and that reality should turn our lives upside down. And finally, how does all this impact our mission in, from this church in 2017? Well, in the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus provoked his audience with the astounding news that in Jesus, God's love had been made manifest in the here and now. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. And the thing is, we can do some or all of those good things that I've mentioned without necessarily getting this good news out to the 90% of the people who live around us in the communities where we live and work. So how are we to provoke those 90%? who don't follow Jesus, to consider the gospel of Christ. Well, most of you know, some of you don't, because you might be new to St. Matthew's, that the three churches in Southcote work together on joint local initiatives in the community to build bridges, serve the needs of the community, and share the good news of Jesus with, the, with those outside the churches. That's the Grange URC, Southcote Christian Mission, and St. Matthew's, who make up what we call a loose kind of confederation called Southcote Alive. And we meet once a month to play, to pray, to plan, and to prepare these joint outreach projects. And one of them that's happened recently that most of you know about is Carols in the Square. We organise that through Southcote Alive each year, but many other things. But this year, we're going to ask you to join in with us on an initiative that we are calling Big Questions, Southcote's Big Questions. It's going to be launched in May. And the aim of it is to use one simple question to provoke people to engage with questions about faith. And it's simply this. If you could ask God one thing, what would it be? That's the question we're going to take out to the community. And over a period of about a month, in May time, we're going to collect questions from as many people as possible. Community groups, schools, the cafe, shoppers in Coronation Square... And then in June, we're going to run a series of sessions answering those questions, the questions that the community raises themselves in different contexts in the community to answer those questions. And of course, when I say Southcote, I don't really mean the geographical area of Southcote. I do mean that as well. But I also mean all of the networks, the friendship circles, our families, the places of work, all of the places where all of us in the three churches come into contact with whether it's Southcote, Reading, Slough, Swindon, Oxford, whatever, doesn't matter. We plan for this to be on the web as well as physical so that people can engage from a distance. And the whole point of it is to raise awareness, get people talking, get them thinking, get them opening up their hearts and minds to the possibility that there might be more to life than what they can see and touch. It's an ambitious initiative 
Uh, but we're, we're excited about it, and we're going we're gonna to roll it out. We're gonna hit, you're going to hear much more about it and how you can get involved later on. But if you have any thoughts about how we might do that better, please don't be bashful. Come and make your suggestions. Just as Jesus provoked the synagogue readers in Nazareth to fury, we hope to provoke questions and interest, not fury, in the communities which we come into contact with so that we can invite them to take the next steps on a journey of discovery that will lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. I'm excited, excited about it. I'm excited about the new people that we will reach in 2017. And I'm excited about seeing more lives transformed by the love and the grace of Jesus. Let's pray.